Today, we are going to really wrap up a major portion of the book of John. And you'll notice we still have nine chapters to go after this. Um, And as a point of, of reference, this is the 50th message we have in the book of John. Okay? Now, listen, I... I was at a conference this week, and there was a guy there who took th- three years or more to preach through the book of Romans, so I don't feel so bad, okay? Um, but, but just to give you an idea of where we are in the book of John, we're coming now to the end of the public ministry of Jesus. We, we began to see that at the end of last week, and now today we'll see the, the full conclusion of that. Um, Jesus is going to spend now a a good portion of this time of the Passion Week with his disciples, um, informing and seeking to help their faith in him for the things that they're going to go through. Uh, So today at the end of John 12, we're looking at this idea of reflecting on unbelief, Uh, because really that's what this is. This passage reflects on the, um, uh, the, the reception that Jesus experienced there in Israel as he came as the Messiah. It was a, 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 he experienced rejection, unbelief. You know, I, you always have working titles for things. Um, my working title for this message was an autopsy of belief. Um, we went with something a little less morbid, you know, um, reflecting on the unbelief that, that permeated uh, Israel. And we've seen that over, we've seen it all come to a head here in John chapter 12 in the Passion Week. Um, as people have their own ideas and ideals and fantasies about what the Messiah is and who, what he will do. Um, and now, as, as John kind of wraps everything up and shows us what he said, by the way, in John chapter 1, he said, he came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. And, and so, it's almost like a funnel, right? Now, John has, has funneled us down to this passage that says, look, I told you this is what was going to happen, and here's how it ends in John 12 as Jesus, as the Passion Week continues. Look at John 12, verses 36 through 50. We actually pick up in the second part of verse 36 and read to the end of the chapter. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and whoever sees me, sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does, and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Lord, we thank you for this time we have to open the word of God together today, to study it, to be challenged by it. And Lord, we ask that today you would transform us by the power of your word. You would use your Holy Spirit in our hearts to illumine it, to convict us, to draw us to yourself. Lord, as we look at this reflection of unbelief today, 
our hearts are burdened by what we see. They're challenged by it. Lord, I pray that be one who hears this message today, who, who sees themselves in this category of one who has never placed belief and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, that you would again confront them with the reality of their sin and draw them to the Savior. And I pray for Christians today that you would challenge us with the ministry of Jesus, who though he knew what the outcome would be, continued to be faithful and to exercise these things perfectly in God's plan. May we be faithful in the ministry that God has given us in our corner of the world. May we be encouraged to grow and change and be molded in the image of Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Have you ever tried arguing with someone who just thinks they're right and thus seems (laughs) predisposed, that's the word I'm trying to say, to not believe you no matter what you say? Perhaps this scene has played out in your home several times this week as a parent of a teenager. A teenager's mind moves from childlike thoughts and, and, and begins to move into more abstract thoughts. And as that happens, they have this need to figure out life. And he tends to think that he has it all figured out and begins to question whether or not his parents really know anything. No matter how much you talk it through, he is convinced he's right and he just doesn't believe you. Does that sound like something you've gone through in your life? Okay, don't look around, parents, right? How many conversations in our lives end with, well, let's just Google it and we'll figure it out, right? Do you remember we didn't know anything before Google, right? We just made things up, right? And in a moment of triumph and victory, we turn our phones around and we say, see, I told you I was right and you didn't believe me, right? You ever done that? We as humans love to be right. And when someone doesn't believe us and we know we're right, we take that personally. And sometimes that personal affront that we experience when someone doesn't believe us carries over into our faith. We know that God has sent Jesus and we know that he's died for our sins and we know the truth of the gospel that God saves all who trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. And we ask ourselves this this question, why don't people believe in Jesus? Why why do they think that we're making all of this up? What do we need to do to convince them otherwise? Unbelief in Jesus is not a 21st century problem. Unbelief in Jesus is something that started, it's not something that has started because when attacks began to be levied against the Bible. And it isn't a problem God doesn't address in that Bible. As John has shown time and again, Jesus, the living incarnate word, the son of God and God himself experienced unbelief constantly in his ministry. And now, as Jesus' public ministry draws to a close, John reflects on Israel's unbelief, the sovereignty of God in these things, and the end of all of those who accept or reject Jesus. And what you see here is that rejection of Jesus never removes a person from under the sovereignty of God, and in fact, continues to advance the plans and purposes of God. You see, what we get sometimes going in our hearts and our lives, what you get in in an unbelieving heart in life is someone who thinks, well, if I just don't acknowledge God or I don't, don't have anything to do with him, I can remove myself from his control. I can do whatever I want. My friend, nothing can be further from the truth. You can reject God all you want. It doesn't take him off the throne. He's still in control. Or perhaps we think, That those who reject God and do wrong and sinful things derail the plans of God. But once again, God's sovereignty proves to be much bigger and greater than we could ever imagine. In fact, we'll see in the passage today, we'll talk about how even the, the things, the rejection of Jesus, not only fit, but it advanced the, the mission that Christ had come for and the purpose for which he had come. So let's look today at just a couple of points as we close John chapter 12 and the public ministry of Jesus and we reflect on the unbelief that Israel 
exercised or didn't or failed to exercise, if you want to say the, the belief they failed to exercise in Jesus. And it starts with this section, it starts in verse 36b and goes all the way down to verse 43. And it's this idea of final unbelief. In verses 36 through 38, we get a picture here of Israel's rejection of Jesus. It says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Here we have the end of Jesus' public ministry. He has spent three years displaying himself as the Messiah, calling people to faith in himself. He has done the work of God. He has glorified the Father who sent him. And now, as he prepares for the cross, he will leave the public eye. He will instead focus on the disciples, strengthen them in faith. And as Jesus retreats for the remainder of the Passion Week, John now turns his focus to the nation and an overall summary of Jesus' ministry that he has performed. The general response to Jesus was a response of unbelief. Now, we have, of course, observed people throughout the book of John, throughout John's gospel, who have exercised belief in Jesus. We've seen them. But generally, the message has been one, or the response has been one of unbelief. As we have seen in John 12, even in this climactic week of Jesus' life, most are interested solely in his fulfilling their personal messianic hopes, dreams, and fantasies. And when Jesus did not fulfill these things, they turned away and they even wondered who he really was. Because he certainly couldn't be the Messiah if he was going to die. And here, John lays out what has happened and why. First, he shows us Jesus' rejection by Israel in the face of all the evidence. Notice what he says in verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now John records seven signs, eight if you count the resurrection, that Jesus did before the people. And I want to point you back again to the word that John chooses because he, the words of Scripture inspired by, the, by God aren't just words on a page. They're, they're picked for a purpose, right? And the word that John has used time after time in his gospel when talking about the miracles of Jesus is the word he uses in verse 37, which is the word what? Signs. And if you remember, we talked about before, that word talks about a mark of authentication. It is not just something to, to wow the people. It is not just something to, well, look at this guy or, or, to, or for Jesus to say, I'm, I'm better than you are. It is an authenticating mark that this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. Jesus is who he says he is. Only God can do the things that Jesus does. And so John says, he has done all of these signs in the presence of Israel. Now, if you search the Gospels, you take John and, and the three synoptic Gospels, you'll find somewhere around 37 individual miracles that are recorded in the Gospels. And John tells us at the end of his Gospel that if we tried to record all the things Jesus did, the world couldn't contain those accounts. The problem then of unbelief is not a lack of evidence. John tells us that the evidence bears itself out. The conclusion is obvious if you look at it impartially. The evidences for Jesus' identity as the Son of God and thus the Messiah are plentiful. The problem is not the lack of evidence. The problem is a problem of the heart. These people saw the evidence and they still refused to believe. John records that though Jesus had done so many signs, they, he says, they still did not believe. But perhaps, really, as you dig into the Greek, you could better translate this phrase more accurately. They were not believing in him. It's an ongoing thing. It's not they just made that choice one time, but it's an ongoing, constant, progressive reaction. They were not believing in him. 
It is a conscious choice being made to deny the identity of Jesus Christ because that is always what unbelief is. It is a deliberate choice. It is a decision to go my own way, do my own thing, and believe my own ideas. And it may not be malicious and blatant and in your face every time. I mean, we've certainly seen that, right? I have sat across the desk from people who looked at me and said, well, if that's what God says, I will go to hell. That's a very startling statement, right? And it kind of like, wow. I mean, it's very blatant, in your face, rejection of God. And perhaps you've experienced that. But rejection isn't always so blatant. There's also mellowed refusal of the gospel. It disguises itself as, well, we accept Jesus as a good person or a great teacher or a miracle worker. It accepts Jesus as part of what I need to do in order to get to heaven. But that is just as much rejection as one who speaks rejection in bold-faced denial. And it goes to show, by the way, that though valuable, and I would never discourage one from studying apologetics and reason, those things are very useful. It goes to show us that that can only get us so far. You and I cannot argue someone into the kingdom of God. At the end of the day, there must be a decision to place faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. And please don't mistake my words there. I'm not telling you if you ever study apologetics or ever teach apologetics that it's a bad thing. Those are helpful things and useful things. In fact, I just invited my college class to apologetics thing that, we're, that we'd like to go to in January. But at the end of the day, those can only take you so far because you can't argue someone into the kingdom of God. We can and should give evidence of gospel truth, but we see clearly from this passage that a response to truth isn't limited to man's reason and mind. He must place faith and belief in Jesus. You must trust your soul to the work of God. And what does this require? It requires a supernatural work of God's Holy Spirit in our lives, convicting us of sin. And it requires us to respond to that calling and conviction to trust him. And the people that John is talking about here in Israel had the evidence right in front of them. They had the living word of God, the Lagos, Jesus. And yet they still did not believe. John tells us then that this is in perfect fulfillment with what God predicted in the Old Testament. It's so fascinating. Some of these passages you read in the Old Testament, you don't even realize are going to be fulfilled in Jesus. And this, perhaps, is one of those passages. Because God is sovereign and omniscient. He knew of Israel's rejection from eternity past. So, therefore, the verse that John quotes here in, in John chapter 12, in verse 38, comes from Isaiah 53, 1. Now, that Old Testament passage, which, by the way, is probably the clearest passage that shows us Jesus as the suffering servant, the Messiah who would die for the sins of mankind, begins in Isaiah 53.1 with this question. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has believed what he has observed? And the answer to that question is very few. It says here that the arm of the Lord, his strength, his might, his power, that's what it means when he talks about the arm of the Lord, has been revealed in Jesus the truth of God's salvation has been proclaimed by the Messiah, yet very few have responded in faith to him. As we said, there were some. We saw one at the beginning of chapter 12 when Mary anointed the feet of Jesus who believed in him. But the vast majority did not. This is a sad reality. He came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. However, it is also a reminder of God's sovereignty. For though the Jews would reject Jesus, this did not frustrate God's plan. In fact, it was part of God's sovereign work on the behalf of mankind. Israel made her choice regarding the Messiah, and thus they would experience God's judgment, bringing about God's perfect and finished work of redemption. But notice... That in her rejection, it still fits within the sovereign plan of God. Because what did the Messiah come to do? Did he come to set up the first time in his eternal kingdom? 
No, he came to be sacrificed, offered as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so a few passages later, when Israel completes her rejection and nails Jesus to a cross, and, it said, and you look at that and go, well, it's over. The enemy won. No, he didn't. Because in that, the sovereign work of God is done that Jesus paid the price of sin. Folks, the sinfulness of man does not outweigh the sovereignty of God. And it's not to deny that these are wicked and awful and horrible things that happen, but God is still in control. And so John shares that, yes, Israel has rejected God, and for that, God is levying judgment on Israel because God always judges sin. We see in verses 39 through 41, God's judgment on unbelief. John continues, therefore, okay, because of this, right, whenever you see a therefore, you go back and see what it's there for, okay? They did not believe God, right? They rejected. Very few have believed. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. John tells us in those first few verses that we've read that Israel would not believe. They would not place their faith in Jesus. They would not recognize his identity as the Son of God, the light of the world, the Savior. They would not listen to the signs, the authenticating marks that they saw. So therefore, John now tells us not not only would they would not believe, but now they could not believe. And perhaps at first glance, these are very shocking verses to you. Is John declaring here some fatalistic truth that the Israelites were destined to reject Jesus all along? Did God predetermine their fate, giving them no chance and no choice? Well, the short answer is no. Now we'll get a little bit into what we're talking about, okay? Mankind's responsibility for belief or unbelief is never excused in Scripture. Clearly, the Bible talks about that. Israel was a fickle nation, and what John shows us here is the result of generational unbelief. Israel was God's chosen people. God worked uniquely in and through her for generations. He did so many wonderful things on her behalf. Yet, Israel continued to turn her back on God time and again. If you've read the Old Testament, especially the beginning of the Old Testament, in the history of the formation of Israel and God leading them out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, you've probably observed this pattern, yes? And, and you think, wow, people turn their back on God time after time after time. I mean, just look at Numbers chapter 13 and 14, where God brings the people of Israel to the Promised Land. I was just talking to my kids about this. Uh, in the last couple days, uh, we were talking about numbers. And the people looking at the land and how it was a land flowing with milk and honey had everything they could ever want. And what did they do on the doorstep of the promised land? They said, this isn't the land for us. God doesn't really keep his promises, and they turned their back on God. They exercised unbelief in what he said. So Israel's rejection of the incarnate word It's just the latest in a long line of rejections of God. And as such, the people found themselves under God's judgment. Now, the passage that John quotes here is from Isaiah 6.10. And it's really interesting, by the way. It says in verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. If you're familiar with Isaiah chapter 6, which our first hymn today is taken from the text. Some of it is taken from the text of Isaiah 6. It's the, it's the passage where Isaiah has a vision of God. He sees the glory of God and his train filling the temple and the angels declaring, holy, holy, holy. Notice what he says in verse 41. Isaiah saw these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who is he talking about there? Is he just talking about the Father? I would argue he's also talking about the Son. He has seen God. And so, what does John do here? It's very interesting. John actually updates some of the verbiage of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, to reflect the present state of Israel at this time. 
He says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Their eyes have been blinded. Their hearts have been hardened. Thus, they cannot understand and turn to Jesus and find healing. And this is a very serious matter. And perhaps this is what is perhaps upsetting to us. But understand, this did not come on an unwilling or an unwitting people. Isaiah recorded this in his vision and commission from the Lord. And John's use of this verse here confirms, once again, the deity of Jesus. It reveals Jesus in his role as the judge. He knows the hearts of men. And the heart of unbelief and rejection meets with the judgment of God. And perhaps that is perhaps one of the things that we have to get our minds around. That we think, well, I mean, it's, it's my choice, right? Believe God or not believe God. And, and it, it's just whatever I choose. But understand that if you choose not to believe God, you are disobeying God. Because God's command is to believe in Jesus. And so therefore, when we reject Jesus, we sin against God and we place ourselves under his judgment. And so here are the Israelites, the, the, the nation of Israel, the Jews, refusing to believe God and placing themselves under the judgment of God. They chose to reject him. They chose to reject Jesus as the Messiah. The heart of unbelief and rejection then meets with the judgment of God. And the greatest judgment that can ever be levied against man is to give him what he thinks he wants. Do you realize that? What do the Israelites say they want? We don't want God. We don't want that Messiah. We want our own thing. We want to believe our own ideals. And so God gives them over to what they want, and he hardens their heart. That is what the people showed time and again. So therefore, God turned them over to this unbelieving, hardened heart that they expressed. They forsook the truth of God. Thus, God hardened them against the truth. God's conviction of our sin is an act of his merciful compassion in our lives. We don't look at conviction as merciful compassion. We think of it as, well, that's really uncomfortable. But if God didn't convict us of our sin, you and I would just be happily going along our path of destruction. We should be thankful. He doesn't leave us to our own sinful state, and instead, he shows us who we are and what we need in him. However, if you continue to reject God, there may very well come a day when you have received the last opportunity to believe in him. We may find our hearts, as John says here, hardened by God, given exactly what we wanted. We say we want God on our terms. We want to lie about a relationship with him so that others will leave us alone. Or we say, I don't want God at all. And the worst thing that God could ever do is give you that. Therefore, let us heed the words of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The people didn't believe in Jesus, not only because of their willful choice, but because of God's just judgment then upon their sin of unbelief. Unbelief is sin that bears the wrath of God. And there will come a day when repentance is too late. Now, for some people, that will come because their time on earth is done. They pass from this life into the next, having wasted every calling of God in their lives to repent. For others, I believe what you see in the scriptures is that that day comes even while they still live on this earth. They harden their hearts against God, and they experience God's judgment here and now, preventing them from seeing that truth any longer. And that's a very hard thing for us, I think, to wrap our hearts and our heads around, because we think, well, I mean, that doesn't sound very fair. 
Well, you and I aren't the judge. Because let's talk about fair for a minute. If God was what we call fair, which is a very subjective concept, right? Because fair is only fair if I think it is, right? You ever notice that? God, if God was fair and it was up to his subjective, his subjective judgment, which God doesn't do things in a simple way like we do, okay? I'm not trying to be irreverent. How many of us would experience the conviction of sin? God is not fair, he is just. And he is the one who makes those judgments. He is holy, he is set apart from sin, therefore he is perfectly just. So here's the question. Okay, I get that, maybe. And I get that there may come a time in somebody's life when they no longer have the opportunity to respond. God has given them over to the heart, he has hardened their hearts, right? So how do we know when someone has reached this point or experienced this judgment in their life? You don't know because you're not God. I'm sure we have stories of people in our lives that we have thought, we have prayed for and prayed for and shared the gospel with and shared the gospel with and shared the gospel with time after time after time. And maybe you've been tempted in your life to go, well, I guess they're just never going to believe in God. You cannot make that judgment. Now, Jesus can because he's God, right? And John, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, can write what happened because God told him that's what happened. But you and I cannot make those assessments or judgments of people. We should never stop praying, never stop interceding on their behalf, never stop sharing the truth of the gospel with those we know need to hear it. God calls believers to be faithful to share the message of the Savior, leaving the work in his hands. And we see here these examples in Scripture, such as the Israelites who have experienced judgments, or in the book of Exodus. Those of you who are here on Wednesday night, this is where I'm going to call on your the thing I said, hey, pin this in your head, that Pharaoh, his heart was hardened by God. And you say, what are you talking about? You have to come on Wednesday nights to find out, okay? But we see these examples throughout Scripture. We are told that they reach this point of God's judgment, but we can never make that assessment of one on our own. It is our job and our responsibility to do the work of the ministry and let God sort out the rest. And so may God continue to give us grace and mercy. May he continue to give grace and mercy to unbelieving hearts to accept him. And as the judgment of God is revealed on the unbelieving, we see now a third group of people in this group of final unbelief. And it's kind of a strange group as they seek to straddle the fence. We have here in verses 42 and 43 what I call fearful belief. Nevertheless, Many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John shows us here a group of people who have what I would call superficial faith. Now, most likely, these are some who are involved in the Sanhedrin or other positions of authority in that Jewish religious hierarchy. They believed in Jesus, but they refused. They're afraid. They are fearful to confess that belief openly. They saw the actions taken by the religious leaders towards Jesus and his followers. If you remember, the man who was born blind, and Jesus healed him, and he went before the, 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 the Pharisees there, and at the end of it, they threw him out of the synagogue, right? And this is repeated here again. Like, listen, if you confess Jesus, we're, we're basically we're excommunicating you. And that's going to have ramifications on your religious and your social life. And so these people, in, in some positions of religious authority, say, hey, we, we believe in Jesus, but we, you know, we don't really want to confess it. We don't really want to say anything about it. And they knew the consequences of such open faith. The problem here is that these two ideas are mutually exclusive. Belief in Jesus is recognition of him as the Lord of your life, and it naturally leads to open confession and life transformation. Instead, these ones are filled with fear, consumed, John says, with the glory of man. They wanted to be liked, praised, and allowed.
to continue in their roles and positions, they were not yet ready to pay what Jesus would call the cost of discipleship. Among these would have been men like Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus. Now, we know from Scripture that eventually these two men would confess Jesus openly. Their fear would be overtaken by faith, and they would place true saving faith in Jesus. And and perhaps there are others like them as well. But likely there are those who never made that choice, they never placed that faith and made that confession of Jesus. They looked at the evidence, they looked at what they saw, and they believed, right? They said, well, I believe that that's true, but they never came to that moment of, and I'm willing to take a stand. I'm willing to place my faith, whatever it costs. They could not submit to God and exercise full and complete saving faith. And so the words that John writes later, in about AD 90, are actually very convicting. Look what he says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And you read that verse, and there's some really shocking descriptions in that verse. You're like, wow, those are some bad people. But what is the first one on the list? The cowardly. The fearful. They will face eternity separated from God in the lake of fire and punishment for their sin. You see, Paul says later, as he writes to Timothy, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Faith, true faith, sets aside fear, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I'm here to tell you something. Your commitment to Jesus as Lord will come with a cost. Jesus never hid that. He said, remember that statement, I came not to bring peace but a sword? You ever ever heard that before? Okay. It's not to justify crusades, by the way. Okay. What does he mean? Your faith's going to cost you something. You're going to believe in me, and that's going to put you at odds with other people. You may have friends in your life or family who turn away from you. You may experience in your life persecution and ridicule. You will have personal, you will have a personal battle within your own heart and life as you engage in a battle against sin every day with the help of God. But the greatest truth is, you will not enter into these things alone. You will have God with you as his child. You are his child. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit as your guide and strength. You experience the joy of the Lord as a child of God. And what we see here is it's impossible to play both sides. Belief in God is exclusive of any other master. And I think that that statement in verse 43 is the telling statement. That they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They chose their master. I love to be liked. I love to be in the temple. I love the position. But what's the glory of God? Eternal life. A child of God. A guarantee of heaven. A disciple. Experience a relationship with God. They say, well, we, we love that more than we love this. And that's all you need to know about their decision. And eventually... As I said, it would seem that some of them came around to make that decision. They, they, they went, they, they turned their back on the glory of man and chose the glory of God. But they're mutually exclusive ideas. And so as the public ministry of Jesus now draws to an eye-opening close, Jesus now once again declares the truth of belief in himself. We close out John chapter 12 and verses 44 through 50 now with the fate of belief and unbelief. In verses 44 through 46, we read about the assurance of life to those who believe. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. 
And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, it's not extremely clear when Jesus said these words. It may be that John steps away from chronological order here into a more topical order to share something that Jesus said before he left the public eye, right? Um, Perhaps this is a statement that Jesus made at some other time, and John inserted it here as a summary of Jesus' ministry. Perhaps Jesus gave this to his disciples, assuring them of their choice to follow him. Anyway, you slice it. You, you really, you can't see this as anything else than a summary statement of what Jesus has done for 12, what we would call 12 chapters. This is exactly the summation of his ministry. First, Jesus reinforces the assurance that all those who believe in him have in their lives. If you have a relationship with Jesus, he says, if you have a relationship with me, if whoever believes in me, you have a relationship with God the Father, because Jesus and the Father are one. One God, three persons. And this has been stated by Jesus multiple times in his ministry. And here, once again, Jesus confirms this. You cannot believe in the Father without believing in Jesus. And you saw that in, John's ministry, in Jesus' ministry that John records, that, that people would often talk about, well, we believe the Father. And Jesus says, you can't divorce those two. If you believe in the Father, you have to believe in me. You cannot come to faith in God and the assurance of eternal life without recognizing the deity of Jesus, God the Son. Seeing Jesus is seeing God. And though you and I do not see Jesus in the flesh, we read of him in the scriptures. And the things that he did here are the works of God. Jesus came to show the Father and to provide us a way to the Father. He came to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness, he says, into the kingdom of light. The light of the world is Jesus. He shines forth that light and calls you to faith in himself. And what he says is you do not need to stumble in darkness. You can see where you are going. I thought about that statement, the light and the darkness, and this is what came to my mind. If you talk to anyone who doesn't truly know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and you ask them about their assurance of eternity, you will often find the repetition of a common theme in their life. You will hear that they hope they go to heaven. You will hear that they hope they can do enough or that one day I hope to find out that I made it into heaven. And I'll tell you right now, that's walking in the dark, right? That's me going down to our basement in the middle of the night and having to get from one side to the other and hoping I don't step on Lego bricks that my kids left out on the way. It's not a fun experience, right? And if you don't believe me, you just go step on a Lego barefoot in the middle of the night and it'll tell you. In the same way, if you truly know Jesus as your Savior, you're stumbling through life in the dark. Well, I hope I get there. Well, I hope I'm good enough. Well, I hope I said the right things. Well, I hope that this is all real. Well, I hope and I hope and I hope. And Jesus says that he is the light. That if you place faith in him, All of those who place faith in him walk in the light. They know where they are going. They know where they stand. And they know the source of eternal life. And by the way, they don't know it because we have some clever tricks or we have some clever things to say. They know it because God says it in his word. That's where the truth is found. Now, this doesn't mean that they don't struggle. This doesn't mean that they may not doubt in sin. If I asked you in this room, how many of you know the Lord is your Savior and have ever had doubts 
about your salvation or doubts about your Christian walk. Probably most or not all of you would raise your hand. And you know what? I got good news for you. Doubters go to heaven. Well, you mean I just got to doubt and then I'll go to heaven? No. There's some religions, by the way, that teach you that if you ever doubt your faith, well, you've lost it and now you've got to start all over again. But I don't want to preach a message that I'm going to preach in about 50 messages. But <laughs> at the end of John, there's someone who seriously doubts who Jesus is. His name is Thomas, right? My brother's name is Thomas, and it's really great. Just call him Doubting Thomas his whole life. Here you have this guy who wanted to, he says, I have to do this, and I have to do this, and I have to do this. You know what? I think, I can, I think we can pretty well say Thomas went to heaven. And he doubted his faith. Because he looked back to the light and said, you know what? I have some doubts, but, but God helped him with that. Jesus, I mean, did Jesus say, well, that's it. Have a good life. Thanks for playing for three years. No. What did Jesus do? He reassured him of his faith. Now, he delivered a very sobering rebuke that we'll look at, again, in about 50 messages. But it's not uncommon to experience doubt in your life. But if you experience doubt and look for yourself for answers, you're not going to find them. You have to look to the light. You have to look to Jesus. It means they have a relationship with God through Jesus and through him, they have assurance of all the answers of their heart. If you know Jesus as your Savior, be assured of his promise to you today that he will bring you safely home. He will guide you to heaven and himself. He will strengthen you to live for him. Doubts and fears are answered by the light of Jesus Christ. And just as sure as this is, Jesus says, is the end of those who reject him. In verses 47 through 50, as we close out the chapter, you see here the reality of judgment on those who reject. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So secondly, John now shares the reality of judgment on rejection. And Jesus reiterates here that the first time he came was for the purpose of salvation. Though he will be the eternal judge, I believe it's John chapter 5 where that's reiterated, his role on his, in his incarnation was as the Savior. However, Jesus makes it very clear that that does not mean that those who reject him will escape judgment. Those who do not hearken to the words of the Savior, Jesus says, will be judged by those words. And what's more... Jesus is the incarnate word. John says at John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was, was God and the word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. A denial of him and his proclamations will bring judgment. Very simply, the one who rejects God's word will be judged by that word on the last day. You can throw this out all you want. But this is exactly what God is going to hold up because it is, it is the reflection of himself on the judgment day. And listen, we, we seem to understand that in the temporal world we live in. If you're driving down the road through Beaverton and you're going in the middle of town and you're driving 55 miles an hour through the middle of Beaverton, you know what's going to happen? Yeah, one of the three police officers we have is going to pull you over, right? And if you say, well, listen, sure, I was going 55, but I just don't accept the laws of Beaverton. How's that going to go for you? 
Well, my goodness, sir, I'm sorry. Have a good day. Do whatever you want. Right? No. He's going to say, that's nice, and give you a ticket. And this is your date to appear in court for judgment. In the same way, we have no problem accepting and understanding that. In the same way, you say, well, I don't accept what you say in your word. And we expect then that God's going to say, well, my goodness, then, come on into heaven. I mean, you just don't accept it. So, no, in the same way, God, who is the just judge, says, this is the standard. And if you don't accept it, you will be judged by it, right? That's the truth. And you and I can make every attempt to twist, excuse, and deny God's word here in this life, but in the last day we will have no excuse. Instead, we will, you will, if you reject Jesus Christ and the word of God, you will stand condemned by your rejection at that word. It will, in fact, be your own rejection that condemns you. The truth of the matter is, God's word is the final authority on all things. In it, God has revealed all we need to know, Peter says, for life and godliness. So, embrace the word of God. Embrace the truth of Jesus, the living word, and find eternal eternal life. And what Jesus says in these last two verses, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus once again reiterates The authority for these things comes through the Father. God the Father gave Jesus a commandment to speak these things. He gave Jesus the commandment to secure eternal life through his death. And he gives us a commandment today. Find life through belief in Jesus. What is the theme of John? Life in Jesus, the Son of God. There is no other way. There are no other answers. The Father sent his Son as Savior of the world. The Father sent his Son to give us eternal life. The only way to this life, then, is through faith in Jesus. Any other way you try to take will lead you to judgment and condemnation. But there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. And that life is available through faith in him. Now, it is a life lived in his strength for his glory and with his peace. Rejection of Jesus never removes a person from under the sovereignty of God and in fact continues to advance the plans and purposes of God. Unbelief really is a scary thing. For in order to reject Jesus, you must do so in the face of insurmountable evidence and truth. Jesus is who he says he is. He has done what he said he would do, and he calls for you to place your faith in him today. And just as the majority of Israel walked away from God in unbelief in Jesus' day, so too today many walk away from God in unbelief. Some do it in open hostility, They want nothing to do with Jesus, and they will let you know that. Again, maybe you've experienced that in your life. Others couch their rejection in terms of religion or non-committed doubts or reasons why they don't believe. Rejection takes many different forms, but it all goes back to the same outcome, a failure to believe and thus a disobedience to God's call for faith in Jesus alone. And such disobedience leads to separation, condemnation, and judgment. So what you need to see here today is Jesus calls for faith in himself. And if you place faith in him, you will be rewarded. God never lets anyone down. You can trust him to keep his promise of eternal life, and you can trust him to see you through this life with your best and his glory in the forefront of all he does. Disciples rest then in the assurance of God's life, for they live out that life and belief in God. 
It affects every aspect of your life. It, it transforms you day by day into the image of Jesus. And it burdens you to share the message with others. So make a difference as a disciple for the kingdom of God today with the power of God. And listen, don't take it personally where you share the gospel with people and they don't believe. I think sometimes we, we do that. We, we share the gospel, we pour out our hearts, and they don't believe, and we go, man, I just... They just don't like me. No, it's just me, and it's me, and it's me. It's not about you and me. It's about God. It isn't up to us to twist arms and force people into the kingdom. It isn't up to us, frankly, even to dumb down the message of, God, of the gospel or to make it easier to believe. And we've been guilty of that over the years in Christianity, have we not? And listen, if you, God wants you to be happy, and if you will just add Jesus to your life and just say these things, then you'll get to heaven. And Jesus says, that's not true. We just saw that today. Some love the glory of man more than the glory of God. Don't be afraid to share the message of the gospel. Share the truth in love, right? And I think that's the other part of the key. We have to share the truth in love. Jesus always did that. We can't just run people over with our truth trucks all the time, right? You're a horrible, wicked, awful person, and God's going to send you to hell. Okay, that's all true, right? And we need to share that. But there's probably a loving way to do that, right? You say, well, sometimes that is the most loving. Yeah, I would agree. Sometimes that is the most loving, depending on where you're at. But we need God's wisdom in those things. We are called to present the truth, call people to a response, and trust God's sovereignty in these things. So what can we say to disciples looking at this passage today? I would just say it this way. Stay faithful. Stay faithful to doing what is right. Stay faithful to serving the Lord. Stay faithful to sharing the gospel. And let God sort it out. Turn it over to him and his sovereignty and his glory. Father, thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. Thank you for Jesus Christ who gave himself willingly for us. As we have wound down the public ministry of Jesus, Lord, we are admittedly troubled in our hearts by the rejection we see. We are sometimes disturbed by the judgment we read of. So, Lord, would you use that in our hearts today? Would you help us to see that you are the eternal, sovereign God who is over all these things? And, Lord, I pray for disciples here today, for those who have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ that you would convict our hearts. You would help us to see there is a world that is full of people who are dying and going to hell today. And we may not be able to reach every single one of them ourselves, but we have a sphere of influence that you have placed us in to share the gospel. It may be, it starts first in our own homes, and then it spreads out to our family and our neighbors and our coworkers. And the people that we have interaction with, that we have opportunity to build relationships with, where would you show us that you have called us to be faithful, to live for the kingdom and not for ourselves? May we seek the glory of God in these things. And Lord, we pray that you would show, show yourself faithful and save some of those in that influence of our lives. That you would even choose fit to see fit to choose to use us broken people to share the hope of the gospel with somebody else. Or may we even enjoy the privilege to lead someone else to you, knowing it's not about us, it's about you. I pray, I continue to pray for one who hears these messages from the book of John, who struggles with their faith, who puts on the show, who doesn't really want to give their life to you, you would show them grace and mercy today. She wouldn't turn them over to the judgment of a hardened heart, 
that you would continue to break up the fallow ground and show them who you are and what you've done. Lord, may they have the boldness and the courage. May they have the the grace in their lives to respond to you, to make that decision to place their faith in you and you alone. And may they see the amazing, transforming work you can do. Father, we ask as we close this service today that you will continue to be honored and glorified in what we say and do as we leave this place today. In your name we pray, amen.